The first cut on this record has been cross-format focused for airplay success. The men beat on their drums. Welcome to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Archin Vinayak. We spoke about Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, the Bhatia Janta Party and the history of Hindu nationalism. We also discussed the situation in Kashmir, the Citizenship Amendment Act and the slowdown of the Indian economy. If you'd like to hear the extended version of today's interview, then please consider becoming a supporter of the show. You can get access to extended versions of all PTO episodes from $3 a month, which is just over £2. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. Today's show is brought to you by PTO supporters on Patreon and also by Haymarket Books, who have a great many titles that might be of interest to listeners. One that you might like to check out is Yellow Earth. A new novel from critically acclaimed writer and director John Sayles, the book documents the discovery of shale oil under a sleepy town in North Dakota and the neighbouring Three Nations Indian Reservation. With dexterity, insight and wit, Sayles introduces us to a memorable cast of characters as the oil starts to flow and all hell breaks loose. In the US, the book is available from haymarketbooks.org. Customers in the UK can find the book at all the usual online retailers. Archin Vinayak is a writer and social activist, a former professor at the University of Delhi, and a fellow of the Transnational Institute. He's the author of The Painful Transition, Bourgeois Democracy in India, and The Rise of Hindu Authoritarianism. I began the interview by asking Archin about the significance of the general strike in India that took place at the start of January. The strike was actually a general strike on January 8th which was called by about 10 central uh, trade union federations and uh, 100 farmers' organizations and some independent trade union bodies, which are not central trade union federations, but elsewhere. And uh, the estimated uh, number of people who participated in this one-day strike was around about 200 million or more. Because India is a continent, really, it had uneven effects, stronger in some places, weaker elsewhere. And it was focused on economic demands to a very considerable extent. The problem of not jobless growth, but job loss. This government has brought in four new labor codes regarding industrial relations, regarding occupation, health and safety, regarding minimum wages and so on, all of which are moving in the direction of favoring employers. So there was, of course, a very strong protest against that. There were demands for the universalization of the public distribution system for basic uh, grains and and pulses and so on. Uh, And because of the ongoing agitation uh, in different parts of India against what's called the Citizen Amendment Act and the associated fact of uh, establishing a kind of uh, national register of citizens, opposition to the CAA and the NRC, the National Register of System, was also part of the demands. So 
this, of course, is a positive development. But one should also put it into perspective in the sense that unlike the agitation that is going on uh, against uh, the CIA and the NRC, this was a one-day thing. Uh, and this has happened in the past as well. So by Western standards, it seems dramatic, given the kind of size of what has happened. But it's something that this government can ride out. Unless there is a much more sustained and continuous opposition from the larger working class, the trade unions, which, of course, are also connected, unlike in, uh, in Britain, so much, they're connected to this party or that party or so many other parties, as you know. The impact of, of this is temporary, at least as far as this larger issue is concerned about CAA, how to change the economic slowdown and so on. So it's an expression of frustration. It's an expression of anger to the extent that it's connected also to the ongoing agitation against the CAA and the RRC. It's all good, but we will need a lot more. And on the CAA, could you explain the, the specifics of the law and its consequences? Right. Well, the point is, as perhaps many of uh, your listeners would know, the um, ruling party in the moment in India is, or perhaps they don't know, is actually a far-right force. The political party is what's called the BJP, the Bharatiya Janta Party, which is part of a much, much larger family of organizations whose parent body is known as the RSS, National Volunteer Corps, if you like here. And this is a far-right force, which is been openly committed to establishing a Hindu uh, nation and a Hindu state in all but name. That is to say, its focus and its scapegoat, as many uh, is Muslims in particular, where about 14% of the population. And the importance of this Citizen Amendment Act is that since 1940, since independence, because at least India has on the face of it a secular constitution, it, uh, uh, there's supposed to be uh, equal citizenship rights regardless of religious faith. The significance of the CAA is that it actually, for the first time, introduces, has introduced a law which connects citizenship to religion. And it's done in this way. The act says that non-Muslims facing religious persecution from Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Bangladesh can have, if they are in India, can apply for fast-track naturalization. But if you're Muslim, you are going to be considered illegal. Now, this CA is also going to be connected to what's called the National Population Register, which will be a way of collecting various information, including information that has never been before asked, uh, and demanding required documentation, birth certificates, parents, uh, proof of parents' birth and place, and so on, and a whole host of other de developments. Documents that many people don't have. Yes, many people they don't have, because in India, most births, for example, take place at home. What does it mean? It means that there's going to be tens of millions of people who don't have this. But if you are not a, uh, if you are not a Muslim, then you can apply to stay on because you can say that you are a migrant from uh, these three neighboring Muslim-majority countries and that you've lost your documentation and you'll be okay. And those who are Muslims will then be, uh, have many rights deprived and they can be sent to detention centers. It's very difficult to expel them but they would be deprived, they're not citizens, and therefore they will be deprived of a whole series of other rights, and uh, many of them put into de uh, detention centers, many just uh, controlled in other ways and so on. So it's a way, in fact, of ensuring 
that you're moving in the direction of terrorizing, ghettoizing, and inferiorizing Muslims in particular. There's another dimension of this which has not played up so much, and that's also very important. And that is that I said that this act is also connected and is to what's called the National Population Register. And this National Population Register will not simply require the document that I mentioned here about your, your birth and so on, but will also be asking a whole set of other questions about your identity card, your mobile number, your license number, and so on. And this is very much connected to the process of trying to establish a much more controlled surveillance state in India for everybody. Because this particular far-right force faces opposition from leftists, from liberals, from others, and so on, and wants to have this in place. And uh, so that the trend in Western democracies towards also moving towards some kind of a surveillance state is very much here and is in many ways perhaps stronger. This dimension of the CAA has not been played up so much. The other interesting thing behind this development and why people have opposed it is also because since 2014, the two main components of the resistance have been ordinary Muslims coming out on a mass scale in a way that has not been seen since 1947 or even before 1947, maybe dating back to the 1920s when there was a huge what was called Khilafat agitation. And the other section is, in fact, students and youth. And this has also been related to the pent-up frustrations that students have had since 2014, because part of the project of establishing a, a Hindu nation state is to uh, ideologically homogenize, which means control the media as much as you can and control education as much as you can. And since 2014, there has been a very systematic assault from both the top and the bottom. So from the top, this government has tried to move in the direction of what you can call privatization, what we call in India communalization. That is to be, uh, you know, to, uh, you understand the word communalization, mm, yeah. uh, creating much greater attention and so on. Yeah, and that to be done through changes in the curriculum and getting their own administrative staff, vice chancellors at the top of these universities, plus having selection processes which give uh, much greater favoritism to their own selected candidates and centralization as well. So you've got commercialization, communalization, and centralization in the sense that education uh, also comes under what's called the concurrentness. It also comes under state governments. And not all state governments are BJP ruled. You have about 11 state governments which are not, and they're quite big and important. So centralizing would also mean that you could have much greater central control over that. So that's from the top. From the bottom, their wing, which is called the ABVP, to support them to uh, attack other, uh, oppose and weaken other student wings bodies, and that has been done in various ways, introducing, of course, uh, restrictions uh, on their freedom to protest, freedom to mobilize. And the trigger for the sudden eruption of this frustration was the police assault on two Muslim minority education institutions. Muslim minority education institutions are those which have a much larger than proportion of Muslim students and what happened here is that there was a police assault within the campuses. Students were peacefully protesting on their own student demands for greater democratization within for their speech, for material questions about fee hikes and hostel fees and so on. And the police came in and started beating them up, going into the libraries where students were quietly working, vandalizing the place. And this is in Delhi. 
In Delhi, the police do not come under the control of the Delhi government. They come under the control of the center. In the biggest state of India, which has a population which will probably make it the fifth largest country in the world, that state is called Uttar Pradesh, which is the chief minister is a practicing Hindu priest of his sect, as well as the chief minister, itself a violation of what should be a secular principle. He has been an utterly ruthless person, and the attack on the university there, which was called Aligarh Miskul University, was even worse. And then you had the imposition of all kinds of laws throughout the state, uh, internet lockdowns throughout the state, and police going uh, right. There have been some estimates, but at least 20-odd people, probably closer to 30, who have been killed as a result of police action, virtually overwhelmingly Muslims. And you have a chief minister saying that we will carry out revenge. Just today, just today on television, you had a UP minister saying that those who were guilty of protesting and carrying out damage to property and all, they should be shot like dogs. This is hate speech. You have another BJP minister who's saying that uh, we will bury the protesters. You have the home minister of this country, who is the second most powerful man in the country after Modi. His name is Amit Shah. He's the home minister of this country. He is saying that those who raise anti-national slogans will be, should be, must be put in jail. This is the kind of situation there. And the most remarkable thing is that the protests are carrying out. Of course, quite recently, there is uh, uh, masked intruders came in with the police standing there, not doing anything, came in and actually beat up students. And these were masked uh, uh, intruders who are clearly connected to um, the uh, forces of these, what we call the Sangh Pariwa, the BJP, RSS, and so on. Which is a paramilitary force, right? Well, this is more than a power. I mean, uh, there are different, there's a division of labor. Mm. The RSS is... Um, has got maybe uh, four, three to five million. Uh, we don't exactly because they keep it secret. Cadres of their own. You have the VHP, which is involved in cultural activity. You have a lumpen body, which is pan-Indian, called Bajrang Dal, which you have, you have ex-servicemen. So you have, of course, uh, a whole set uh, of bodies which are specifically meant to carry out uh, lumpen activity, but that doesn't prevent many other cadres and activists uh, who are connected uh, to them to also be involved in this. Plus, you also have pro-Hindu Hindu groups, which are not part of the Sangh, but uh, are elsewhere, which also in their own way are willing to carry out activity. Because since 2014, we've had any number of lynchings, of, uh, pri- of uh, primarily Muslims, lynchings by small groups, three, four individuals on one person like that here, which is something new. And uh, that's been carried out. So it's an expression of the kind of polarization and hateful polarization that has taken place. And the response of this government to this unexpected upsurge is to continue to try and take a hard line. And what's happened, of course, is that these different experiences, the Muslim uh, majority which has come out, is not doing so in the name of Allah. They're doing so in the name that, look, we are Indians. We are citizens of this country. We have every right to be here. Why are you trying to treat us as non-citizens? And this is also connected to uh, uh, the students, youth, and many liberals and other left groups and so on. So it's, it's become a kind of fight for a much more secular and democratic conception uh, to preserve at least what's there in, uh, in the Constitution. 
uh, in the laws that India is a secular democratic country in which there should be equal rights for all citizens. Muslims, of course, are very worried about their very existence because if they're not citizens, what do you do with them? But it's connected to a larger concern. And that, of course, is a, a very positive thing. On the question of Kashmir, what do you think is the end game from the point of view of the BJP? This was the only Muslim-majority state, Jammu and Kashmir, in India. It has two parts, Kashmir and the Jammu. Jammu has a much larger proportion of Hindus, although 35%, 30% there was also Muslims. And the uh, valley, which is what most people mean when they talk about Kashmir, sure. uh, is overwhelmingly Muslim. Right. So this is the only Muslim majority state. Hindu population in Jammu is quite substantial. And the fact that it has autonomous status was something that was very galling historically. And the, uh, the BJP has always said for so many decades that it wants to get rid of that. It got rid of that. And what is this project now? And what is the implication of getting rid of it? For one thing, there's an external implication what it's then said is that to hell with Pakistan, there is no question of us compromising in some way because earlier efforts had been made by previous governments in Pakistan, India. Maybe we can move towards a soft border. Maybe we can have some kind of a collective status. That's gone. So what the uh, uh, BJP is saying, you, the Pakistanis, are a permanent enemy because Pakistan, of course, cannot accept what's happened over here. And that fits in with the BJP plan because the constituency in India, which is anti-Muslim, is smaller than the constituency which is anti-Pakistani. So the BJP always plays the game, not just the anti-Muslim game, but also the anti-Pakistani, which can attract liberals and so many others and so on, uh, or others who are not that is here. So that's on the external front. Now, what do they do internally? As you know, of course, there's been a terrible lockdown. Perhaps to your listeners it may come as a surprise, but for a long, long time now, the proportion of armed personnel of all types, police, paramilitary and forces, army, to civilians is greater than anywhere else in the world, including the occupied territories in Palestine. So what do they plan to do? Jammu, where has a Hindu population, both the prime minister and the home minister have said, we are going to restore statehood. What they've done is that they reduce the status from statehood to what is called union territory status. This is the first time something like this is done. If the Supreme Court, which has so far remained silent, does not strike this down, it has set a precedent for what this government can do in other states. Where, Because India is a huge uh, country, you have other state governments which are not BJP, and you have a federal system, which of course they have. So part of the project of Hindu Rashtra is also centralize as much power as you can. Okay, but that's an implication for other parts. What they are, in my view, likely to do now is that they will first do a delimitation exercise, uh, gerrymandering of the districts in Jammu, which is uh, geographically much larger, which although has a slightly smaller population than uh, the valley. They will gerrymander it to create more constituencies so that when they uh, re restore the legislative assembly in that, because there are two types of union territories in India, those that have a legislative assembly, like Delhi, which has a 25 million population, and the Jammu and those that don't have a legislative assembly. Once they've gerrymandered this over a period of time, they can call it a, a legislative assembly for Jammu and Vishnavir, get a majority, which could then say that, okay, we will restore statehood in Jammu uh, and uh, remain union territory in Kashmir.
Or in any case, what they're doing is that they're institutionalizing the process or seeking to institutionalize the process whereby there will be a, uh, an enduring dominance in that state government, which hitherto has always been dominated by uh, parties from the valley. Uh, and uh, what they can do there, of course, is that if they further trifurcate, that is to say separate Jammu from the valley, they can maintain from center, from center a prolonged rule over there and rule it with a, an iron fist, which, of course, they have been doing it, because, after all, that's overwhelmingly Muslim. We need to teach them a lesson and so on. I mean, there is no justification for what they've done here. And the extraordinary thing is that the Supreme Court has not even taken up uh, habeas corpus petitions. I mean, one of the fundamental principles in a democracy is that you cannot just arbitrarily imprison people without cause, which is exactly what they've done to so many leaders and people in the valley. And it's still five months, and the Supreme Court has not entertained that. So the question of hollowing out Indian democracy in various ways is a process that has always also been taking place. The Supreme Court has been some in terms of that process of, as you say, hollowing out India's democracy, would I be right in thinking that although obviously you see the BJP as a far-right force, you don't think we're on a path towards a kind of a straightforward undermining of democracy where we end up at the point of a dictatorship, but rather a drift into greater gerrymandering and a move towards a managed democracy rather than actual dictatorship? Well, it's, I, I don't see a movement toward one-party dictatorship, and I think you will find that far-right forces everywhere, whether it's Duterte in Philippines or whether it's Le Pen in France, uh, or whether it's Bolsonaro, who is incidentally going to be the state guest at the Republic Day in January 26th here. Right. Um, <laughs> they have right-wing far-right forces, but they're not moving towards one-party dictatorship in these years, they are hollowing out the system of dictatorship, which is compatible with pleasing big capital, the ruling classes, because it's pursuing anti-neoliberal, I'm sorry, neoliberal economics, even though neoliberalism has been discredited as ideology and it has so many problems. But precisely because it has so many problems, the support from dominant classes and all for a harder line is stronger. And uh, it's much, much, much more difficult than in the fascist era now to talk in terms of uh, having establishing a one-party dictatorship. Huh? So the debate in India, which is whether this is a fascist force or whether it's fascistic, I've always argued that, of course, there are so many fascist characteristics. But this debate is not so important as recognizing that the legitimacy that elections provide for them is something that is valuable to them. And insofar as this force wants to be a force that establishes a Hindu state, it's one thing to go after Muslims, it's one thing to go after liberals, it's one thing to go after leftists and others who oppose it. But you do want the support of a very substantial section of Hindus who will accept some degree of curtailment but they don't want a curtailment of their own, a complete curtailment of their own rights and so on in the name of some greater kind of democracy, which at least Hector Mussolini could pretend to be representing in a way that's not possible anymore. Because after uh, World War II, everywhere, you find a much greater awareness among ordinary people that liberal democracy, whatever its deficiencies, justifiably criticized from the left, is something that's important and valuable. And they don't need to do that. Uh, they need to hollow it out. 
to control the executive, control the uh, uh, the Supreme Court, so that uh, the checks and balances are much much weaker, uh, and of course to control the media to move, as I said, towards. In fact, uh, if I were to sum up their project, it's it's something like this: number one, this government uh, wants to subordinate or eliminate electoral political competition. It can't completely eliminate, but it has a focus on the uh, Congress, which is the only party that can claim to be national, which was national and has a national perspective and international perspective, right? But you have so many regional parties, so either you are able to push them out and come to power in those states, or you subordinate them and they become allies of yours, and therefore you can control and so on. That's one. Number two, terrorize, inferiorize, ghettoize Muslims, reduce them to second-class citizens, and other minorities, uh, be warned. Hmm? And the third is hollow out both democratic institutions of various kinds and federalism through centralization. So what I said earlier about them for the first time setting a precedent in throwing away statehood and reducing it to union territory, that's never been done before. The reverse has been done, that you've elevated union territory to statehood. But then that becomes something which is still not posed by the Supreme Court. So hollowing this out in a variety of ways. And uh, fourth, ideological homogenization through what you do in uh, the media, what you do in the education system, and incidentally, even in terms of what they're trying to do within Bollywood. So, I mean, this is the thing thing that they're doing. And when I talk about a longer-term hegemony, I think very, very important to recognize about the the BJP and the Sun. And what makes it totally different from far-right forces anywhere else is the following. Number one, this is a far-right force that has a continuous existence of over 90 years. You tell me any other far-right force anywhere in the world which has anything like this. Number two, it has an implantation in Indian society, civil society of a kind that no other far-right force has. The BJP counts 180 million members of the party. Now a huge chunk of these, tens of millions, are members because they simply have to punch in a missed call to show that they're members. But that also shows a passive support. Sure, so there's a quite large passive... Yeah, passive support, right? That's the BJP. They have some four pan-Indian organizations. It's a growing. The BJP party, the RSS, the VHP, which is the religious cultural wing, which connects to all sorts of Hindu religious establishments and groups and sects and, and leaders and so and so on, etc., which is pan-Indian, and which is also there in the diaspora elsewhere, whether it's England or whether it's uh, uh, US or and other places here. Then you have the uh, Bajangdal, the Lumpen dimension, which carries out actions which the RSS or the VHP or the BJP uh, may not do. And then the BJP can say, oh, it's a law and order problem. We're not responsible. That's also four. That's pan-Indian. You have 36 affiliates. You have close to 100 NGOs doing all kinds of work in civil society, including progressive work in terms of disaster relief, in terms of provision, uh, leisure facilities, education locally. It has the largest uh, network of private schools in in the country, of course, with a BJP agenda, but they're spread there into tribal areas and elsewhere and so on. So you have a whole host of degree of implantation so that people also align with them and join them, not simply because agree with their ideology or whatever, 
which is basically quite crude and all, but for a whole host of other reasons, secular reasons. Take, for example, what happened during the Arab uprising in Egypt. You had uh, the liberals and others, liberal elements and progressive elements uh, at the spearhead of that uh, uprising, but which were the principal beneficiaries until the army uh, stepped in? It was the Muslim Brotherhood. Why was the Muslim Brotherhood the principal beneficiary? Because they have been rooted in civil society, face-to-face mobilization activities of all kinds, which is there. This is something that the Indian left had a history of doing in certain parts of India regionally. But the Indian left, the mainstream left, is much mm, weak. Places yes, like Kerala, Canada. West Bengal, uh, Tripura to a certain extent. Even uh, beyond that, in certain parts of Bihar and, uh, and elsewhere, uh, uh, and UP also. But uh, it's the BJP RSS. And of course, now with state power also, there is also the added factor of patronage and winning people over through patronage, which also has a negative side because now, if you like, many people are with the BJP for what they can get rather than the question of ideology. And you always need people who are ideologically committed, Mm. but they have a huge support for that as well. Presumably also there are people who are drawn in through the the patronage networks who then the ideology comes secondarily, but it does come perhaps. Yes. In fact, uh, one of the points that I've made is that uh, it's in the last 10, 15 years that this particular force, which I call the Sangh, the Sangh Parivar, the whole lot, have developed a a layer of very sophisticated English-speaking academics, journalists, lawyers, accountants, IT technicians, and so on. In fact, uh, they have a, a troll army, which is highly organized, IT cells, which are working on social media all the time. Huh? Others have also got it, and it's cheaper and easier for even smaller forces to uh, to be active on this thing. But they have all of these things. And so now you find all kinds of rationalizations that are taking place. And let's always remember one thing I think was very important. They are also gaining because there's a huge sense within India about people being a, a kind of existence of a very insecure and frustrated nationalism, which they've been able to play along and therefore promote the idea that we are the forces that can build a strong India. And this idea of a strong India attracts all kinds of people, including sex, I mean, liberals, of course, but including sections uh, of the left. If you look at uh, uh, right-wing and far-right populism everywhere, Make a distinction, one, between a populism which is much more electoral and not so deep-rooted in society. I would, take, I would see uh, Le Pen as this. Electoral, yes, but not the same kind of implantation there. Yeah? But the uh, right-wing populism, the form that is taken by right-wing populism and far-right populism everywhere is an authoritarian nationalism. The nationalism is very, very central. And common also to these far-right forces is scapegoating if it's not immigrants or this, that, etc. So that element comes in. I forgot to say that uh, I mentioned two characteristics of the Sangh, which are different from the other far-right forces. But another thing to keep in mind is that the opposition in India is much weaker than, say, in France, where you will have right-wing conservative parties as well as social democratic parties and Melanchor and others or even in the Philippines and others, whose weight, or even in Brazil, whose weight is, uh, is, is significant. What those countries don't have, which India has, which is at least a significant objective obstacle to the BJP and the Sun, is the huge size and diversity of India. 
It's a, it's a continent. Uh, Brazil may be larger area terms, but it doesn't have these incredible diversities and this, which crisscrosses and makes it more difficult, if you like, to try to hegemonize and centralize. But they are the force that has been hegemonizing and so on. So, I mean, I would take uh, uh, all that into consideration also. I don't want to sound too pessimistic in the sense that even as I'm saying that they are a hegemonizing force and so on, they have huge problems as testified to by the upsurge. But to fight against them successfully, we have to fight against neoliberal capitalism and much more for democracy. We have their weak spots are the economy, jobs, welfareism, public health, education, decent education, the caste issue. Uh, their squeezing of democratic rights and Holland, which is going to create a resistance. All that is there, and all this is a guarantee that there's going to be periodically upsurges of various kinds in India. But the issue is not that there won't be such upsurges and upheavals and resistances. The question is, what direction overall will the politics take? And that really depends upon living politics. It depends upon the subjective factors that are able to utilize these opportunities to create greater strength and, and resistance and so on. And that's really the key question. And one of the issues here, of course, is that the other, uh, insofar as the necessary condition for opposing them is uh, opposing neoliberal capitalism, the other parties uh, are not against neoliberal capitalism. <laughs> Yes, I mean, and Congress itself was responsible for the neoliberalisation of, of the Indian economy, right? Right, right. They, um, they really brought it in. And so you see the difference between the BJP and the Congress is really at the domestic level. At the uh, uh, economic level, they're pursuing the same thing, but having their own flourish, if you like, in the sense that uh, they are now the most important force that arbitrates within the dominant classes, and what they'll be saying to the capitalist classes, we are for all, we are, we are, we are for all of you. We want to strengthen you. Huh? But those of you who are come closer to us and don't have any liberal illusions or uh, anything like that, you are going to be rewarded more. And the others, you better keep quiet, otherwise we'll squeeze you. So you've got a capitalist class, which even though there are a number of cap- capitalists who are capitalists, but would like to have a stronger liberal democracy and unhappy, they keep their mouth shut. So that's at that level. Huh? What they say to the middle class and uh, the professionals is that, uh, which is by and large fairly reactionary and supports them, that's fine. Caste is a tricky factor for them because, on one hand, they want to win over the lower caste, especially the Dalits, and therefore they have to make serious concessions. But they can only go so far in those concessions because they have to maintain an overall commitment to a broadly Brahmanical upper caste perspective and understanding uh, of India. As far as liberals are concerned, if we can't co-op you, we'll monitor you, we'll harass you, surveillance, all that, etc. But we have to be a little bit careful, the prominent liberals, because if we go after you too strongly, internationally there'll be what we call a hangama, there'll be a, an uproar of some sort. But leftists, leftists we can legally harass, punish, and if possible eliminate, because even internationally, who cares? You've been listening to Politics Theory Other, a podcast from Tribune magazine. If you would like to hear the extended version of this interview, please consider supporting the show via Patreon. You can find the page at patreon.com forward slash poll theory other. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.